Hello everyone, this is Delvin here, the co-producer of the Utopian Podcast with Jenny and Caroline. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to remind all of you that we would really appreciate it if you would rate our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever service you listen to the show on. By leaving a rating on the podcast, it helps us reach more people by moving up on the iTunes and Spotify ranks so that more great and intelligent people like you can be introduced to the show. And while you're at it, an even better way to support us would just be to share one of your favorite episodes with one of your friends online or just on socials like Twitter and Facebook. And when you do that, you could just tag us. On Twitter, we are at Utopian Podcast, and that's basically the same thing on Instagram and Facebook as well, and we'll be sure to repost anytime we get mentioned. That's all. Thank you, as always, for listening. Now, on to the show. The fact that the entire globe now operates according to the same economic principles, production organized for profit using legally free wage labor, and mostly privately owned capital with decentralized coordination is without historical precedent, says economist Franco Milanovic in his book, Capitalism Alone. We speak with him today about a time when things weren't quite like this. Digging into his past in Yugoslavia, we bridge it to present-day America to uncover the ways in which our current mode of production may be failing us. Capitalism has certainly faced scrutiny in recent years. So what's the way forward? So it's really the, the, the priorities were, were wrong. They are wrong not because the government is simple, it's only bad people and they just want us to go bad priorities. We ourselves have bad priorities because we are driven by a system where actually acquisition of wealth and income are crucial in our own self-esteem and in our projection to the other. My name is Jenny Dodari. And I'm Caroline Kluwinowski. And this is The Utopian. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won. They must be won and used for the progress of all people. I was reading your blog post about Mm -hmm. Yugoslavia and what you were saying about nostalgia really resonated Mm -hmm. with me. You were saying you know, the way that history is conventionally written, you think of Yugoslavia and you think of doom and gloom, but your nostalgia informs you that there were so many pretty moments there. So Mm -hmm. I kind of want you to speak more about just your past and how tying that into the idea that like history is rewritten to maybe take some of our personal experiences away to fulfill an agenda. Uh, What I wrote was not nostalgia. It was what I wrote were the facts. Nostalgia is a different story, so that when you basically take the facts and kind of embellish them. I was not embellishing anything, and I'm actually very aware that this is the tendency that many people do have when they get old, is that basically they embellish the facts. So it was not nostalgia, it's actually, uh, you know, the, the, the reality, the way it was. Now, uh, the issue what prompted me to write was reading um, uh, a book uh, by Tony Yud or Tony Judd, 
because that book, of course, tells among other things, actually. Actually, that book does quite a lot with, you know, communist past. But it deals with the communist past, which actually had nothing to do with my past, because Tony was writing about uh, essentially, you know, the topics that in the, I mean, all the way to maybe the end of communism were very common in New York or Paris, which dealt with Russia of the 1930s. Well, Yugoslavia 1970s had really almost nothing to do with the Russia of 1930s. So that was the, the, the reason why I wrote, because uh, it just essentially does not allow for a variety of experiences. It pushes every, I mean, that's what Tony did actually, pushes everybody in a pigeonhole and that pigeonhole is not big enough. You know, there are different people who have different uh, experiences and different views. It would be the same as saying that actually somebody's experience in the 1928 depression in the US is relevant for a guy growing up in Brazil in 1980. Not really much in common, you know. So that was uh, the reason why I wrote that, that, that thing. Do you think it's in part because people try to dismiss it as uh, just nostalgia and you were uh, fighting against it? Yeah, I, I think so actually, because I, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm aware that there is a certain part of it because we tend always to, when you look at the past, uh, to a little bit, well, some people actually go the other way. They actually just pick up all the negative things, but sometimes you might actually pick up, uh, 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 you know, more positive things. So in that sense, I'm aware of that danger. But what I described were actual, um, you know, things which happened. And uh, I'm actually trying the best that I can actually not to fall into the other or the other, you know, one or the other uh, category of uh, either embellishing things or, or making them worse. But I think what is also important, and I recently had a discussion here a few days ago with um, a Croatian soccer player, quite a famous player, uh, who was actually um, uh, playing first for Yugoslavia, then afterwards for Croatia. Um, he himself is very, as he calls it, patriotic or nationalistic, depending which way you want to look. But, you know, his experiences were quite different. So that actually shows a variety of uh, uh, difficulty, actually, even I think of, of grasping with history, because personal experiences, depending where you live, what is your social class, when were you born, did you have, uh, you know, such and such parents, how was your background, it's very, very different to generalize. Yeah, it seems like what you were doing, it reminds me of a passage by Milan Kundera when he says, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. But taking the mm -hmm. last half of that sentence, you're writing, it's kind of a war against forgetting what happened in Yugoslavia. And, you know, even now with the advent of neoliberalism, there is that mm -hmm. stigma against communism or any form of socialism. So, I mean, I guess what I would love is just for you to elaborate on how maybe the narratives that have been written about Yugoslavia is so negative detracts from the reality that neoliberalism has created a very dangerous reality for so many of us. And where is the focus mm -hmm. on that? You know, I agree with you, actually, what you said, it actually basically writing about the past is essentially a way to, to actually sort of, um, how should I say, oftentimes uh, fight against the global the sort of uh, ruling narrative. And, you know, this is not something which I think is sort of specific to the 
current period, you know, every period, depending on what is the ruling ideology and the ruling view, that creates a narrative which then, of course, uh, not only applies to the period where it deals, but actually tries to refashion the past in the way that it is understandable and acceptable to today. So I think that everybody uh, does that. And then uh, writing something which does not fit into that narrative in a way is actually uh, fighting against that or undermining uh, uh, the narrative. Um, so yes, I, I think actually that's what I was trying to do. Um, I was, um, you know, it is, I think it's also bringing, a, I believe actually bringing much broader picture of the living, ex lived experience of people. Again, I'm saying it doesn't mean that my experience or other experiences, none of them are generalizable because they're all individual. But if you have just one type of experience that you want to promote, then obviously you rule out of the others. Now, just the last point on that, I think actually that um, sort of the image, very negative image of, of socialism was, it, it's, one has to be careful about that because first of all, there is a huge literature which existed, speaking of Yugoslavia per se, before, which is now forgotten. And secondly, that image was always very different in the US uh, versus Europe. You know, U.S. was engaged basically in a, what you call, what uh, Gore Vidal called the, the uh, permanent war for permanent peace. So basically, U.S. was actually a war type economy and ideology since the end of, Cold, uh, of, since the end of the World War II until the end of the Cold War, and now it continues with China and Russia and so on. Uh, so in that sense, the ideology was much stronger a particular type of ideology, but much stronger here than it was in Europe. And I think in that sense that the narrative, which was sort of um, uh, particularly liked or particularly promoted here, was different from the narrative which I think often uh, was promoted in Europe. Secondly, of course, the Europe, I mean, West Europeans by uh, particularly, for example, if you take Germans, by uh, the, the uh, proximity, physical proximity and the number of contacts uh, were of course much more, um, how should I say, realistic, and their knowledge was much greater. I mean, this is still obvious when, when you go, particularly in Germany, because their, their uh, contacts with Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe are, are, I mean, historically, they're not always very good, but they were certainly very deep and they lasted for a long time. So you see that even nowadays when you go in terms of the literature which is being translated in terms of the uh, business contacts, in terms of the knowledge of languages uh, and so on. So in that sense, Germany actually, uh, this is not my story about Germany, but you notice that it is basically sort of, a, in some sense, to become the center of Europe because they are also very obviously in contact with the Western Europe and also in contact with the, with the Eastern Europe. I was wondering, um, what did Yugoslavia do right? And how does the common narrative differentiate from Yugo, your memory of Yugoslavia? Well, what did, well, first of all, actually, the, of course, the system was a socialist uh, system. The, the, there was a one party rule that was a communist party rule, but uh, uh, it was an extremely decentralized country. I mean, depending on which period, I'm talking about the period after the constitutional night. This is really getting too much into detail. The constitution of 1974. You know, people, for example, have no idea that actually of all the countries in Europe, Yugoslavia was the most decentralized country. So, you know, the breakup is simply the end point 
of something which has already been essentially after 1974 constitution broken into the republics. So what you actually had politically, you had Republican oligarchies, which were basically running these republics as a single party state. So it was a single party at the Yugoslav level, but in reality, it was six or eight, depending whether you include provinces as well, parties with their own, you know, communist party bureaucracies that were ruling them. And as actually there was a sort of a saying there that said Yugoslavia is whatever we agree Yugoslavia is. In other words, there was no longer the federal level. The federal level was really whatever we agree that the federal level should do. And so basically it worked as a veto, you know, power at the level of the republics. Furthermore, uh, the, the amount of um, uh, income received by the federal level was very small. I mean, it was one third of, in the ratio to the GDP of what the federal level lives in the, gets in the US, which is a fairly decentralized country. So that's another thing, which of course, people who study Yugoslavia knew that, but for example, at the federal level, you funded only the army, uh, the, uh, the essential government functions, like obviously ministries of foreign affairs, foreign trade and all of that, and not even the police. Uh, no, the sources of, of, um, of revenues, direct taxation, which was really payroll tax, was at a Republican level. So the level of decentralization, I've lived, for example, in Spain recently, and that's also a very decentralized country. But the level of decentralization in, in Yugoslavia was much greater. Last point on that, uh, Catalonia has one of the outs I mean, outstanding grievances against Madrid in tax policies, because unlike the Basque country, which was the only one able to negotiate directly with Madrid, so Basque country gets its own tax and actually keeps it there. Catalonia and other provinces remit to Madrid, and then Madrid sends them back the money. In Yugoslavia, the, it was generalized that you take your own money and then you remit to the center what you will li like, well, not like, but what you are obliged to give the center to do certain functions. So these are the things which actually were, were you know, are not generally known among particularly younger people because who reads now the books from the 1970s or the 80s. So, you know, these are the things that I think worthwhile mentioning. I guess to bring the conversation to the United States and how our own economy compares to the structure that you just described, Caroline asked, what did Yugoslavia do right? And I guess what I wanna ask is, what is America doing wrong? Uh, before I answer that, let me just say, because I wanted to make that point as well, one of the similarities was, was uh, in China, and still there is, in the sense that the Chinese provincial powers were very large, and they have been recently curtailed uh, because essentially provinces were starting to behave in some ways almost like a separate states. Now, of course, in China, the advantage of China is that uh, uh, ethnically or whatever, civilizationally, it's a homogeneous country, whereas Yugoslavia was not homogeneous on religious grounds or even historical grounds. It was really sort of put together in 1918. Uh, so that was, of course, the, the advantage of China. I mean, they have 3,000 years of, you know, common existence, more or less. Uh, but the problem that I just mentioned about the provincial authorities, or in the case of Yugoslavia, Republican authorities be, becoming too strong and disregarded the center was present in, in China as well. Um, now, to, to go back to your question, um, 
well, it's it's a it's a difficult. It's very you ask a very very broad question, you know. Uh, but so let me try to be more specific. Like, what what does coronavirus uh, suggest about uh, the problems in the U.S.? First of all, it suggests that what we were all surprised, including people who did uh, in October of the last year, you know, there was this first, uh, um, uh, there was, I forget, it was Johns Hopkins and somebody else that did the first ranking of, ever of the countries in terms of their ability to confront epidemics. Now, what was the country number one on that list? The most likely to be successful, the United States. What was the country number two on this list? Again, very successful country, UK, another disaster. What was the number three country on that list? Was the Netherlands, again, another disaster. So clearly the, the, the criteria that they, these people were taking, they were not stupid, but they were taking criteria which actually turned out not to matter. They were taking like total spending on medical services per capita, probably GDP, number of doctors per, uh, per inhabitant or such things. What Corona uh, revealed is that these statistics are really very much meaningless. What actually happened in the US had much more to do with, of course, total uh, failure of the federal government, total failure of CDC in fighting between different levels of government. I'll tell you about my impression on that in a minute. A failure of the education system, because that's, that's not mentioned very often. But if you look at the US, how it ranks with other developed countries in terms of um, people believing really most extraordinary things like flat earth, or rapture, and whatever, it always ranks really as an outlier. Now, the, the same is true with uh, uh, wearing of masks, disregard of uh, uh, medical things, or whatever science tells you. So it's actually just a simply a, a symptom, an indication of the problem which was deep, deeply seated. And I think this is what we have seen. Then also the fact that actually the, the death rates were so high, but they were high, particularly high among African-Americans. They were high among Latino population. They were high often, actually I was in California for three months among the non-documented aliens. So politically, this has no salient, no salience. So, you know, the, the death also are not equal. The death of one person is not the same as the death another one, of another one politically. So all the things actually sort of combine to give us the results which are really disastrous and the results that nobody expected before the pandemic. So in that sense, really, I think pandemic was a great revelation about the, the, the problems which are, I think, deep-seated. I think it's actually health in particular, then education, then uh, uh, power of business, because actually in many cases, I, I was, as I said, in California, if you have fragmented rules, then uh, there is no sense in me trying to impose like a lockdown or closing the bars or whatever, if only five miles from me, they're all open. You know, so then, then of course, people would go back and forth. You would actually only screw your own business, you know, local business. So that again was shown by the, by the crisis, inability to actually uh, impose certain restrictions. And of course, on the other hand, you had China and you had also other like democratic countries in Asia uh, doing quite well. Uh, you know, Taiwan, um, South Korea, I mean, um, Hong Kong, Singapore and so forth. And then, of course, Vietnam, which probably is one of the best, and Thailand also. 
You've written before that modern capitalism um, and their societies are built on a dichotomy between the economics and the politics and how they intertwine and uh, maybe sort of fight. And I was wondering, how do you think COVID has also um, affected this in the US, this dichotomy? I think it is highlighted what I just said. So, you know, and uh, um, I think it has highlighted also the need to change things. I'm somewhat skeptical that this would happen. Actually, what eventually what we see is that uh, uh, the governments at all levels have become kind of an a kind of accounting agencies. They basically just report, you know, so many people died, so many tests were done. There is not much really an, an effort to, to change these things. And, and what is also interesting, we are fighting now this pandemic with the same means of a hundred years ago. Actually, if you look at the uh, Spanish flu, we are now at the same situation as we were then. Essentially, you know, take your own, take, uh, you know, care of yourself, <clears throat> put us, be careful, but there is nothing else. You know, we have run out of all other measures in the beginning that we have imposed because people got tired of them. Politically or economically, they cannot be implemented anymore. Nobody can go back to the lockdown. Nobody can go and stop people from traveling. Uh, so we are really back to 100 years ago. And actually, it was interesting also for you to think of this, because we are all the time talking about incredible technological advances that we have made and all that. Well, and this is a case, which is a very important case. You have really a huge epidemic that kills now, this has killed more than 1 million people as, as we speak in the world. And technologically, we are exactly the same 100 years ago. We have not moved a, a bit. Now, it could be that we come with a, with a, a vaccine. We still have to see that, you know, this has been promised, it has been talked a lot and maybe it would happen, but we have not done it yet. And uh, uh, so in that sense, I, you, know, I, you know, we have to think of the fact that um, this kind of self-conceit that we had about technological ability to solve the problems has also been sort of um, uh, uh, punctured by, by, the, by the crisis. Uh, and one last point which just occurred to me now, because I talked about that before, about California, when I was there, uh, you cannot believe that. It's like the Bay Area, the, the headquarters of all the Silicon Valley, like all these phenomenal people. What happens? The computer system in Sacramento crashes. For three weeks, they cannot deliver the data at the county level. Who, I mean, how many tests were taken, how many were positive because the computer system has crashed. And you cannot just believe that stuff. You have Google, Apple, uh, Alphabet, everybody there, like 10 miles from you, and there is no information. You don't know how many tests were taken here, what happened, nothing. So that, that was uh, quite extraordinary also. Right, I think you bring up a really, really interesting point about technology, but I want to challenge that claim that we were at we are at the same place we were 100 years ago i think maybe i want to reframe that question perhaps it is not that we have been technologically stagnant but we haven't leveraged technology to pursue social impact and it reminds me of something that i ran across very randomly a couple of days ago i was thinking about the idea of time space compression and um, Karl Marx brings this idea of the annihilation of time and space up in 1857 when he says, 
Capital must on one side strive to tear down every spatial barrier to intercourse, to exchange and to conquer the whole earth for its market. And I've actually been thinking about how, you know, even in the age of the coronavirus, where everything is so ambiguous, we are kind of in this age where we have annihilated time and space in the sense that we want to go to a mountain in Indonesia to take photos and maybe purchase something on Amazon. We want to do all of those things, but we don't really want to do the things that on the long run are good for humanity. So in addition to conquering time and space, it seems that technology and capitalism and globalization has also conquered the human tendency to approach life. It has redefined our values almost. And this has really, really big implications that I want to talk to you about these implications, both on a very material level. What does it mean that we have conquered time and space in discourses of poverty and material wealth and global inequality? And what does it mean on an existential level where our value systems has been eroded by this very shallow approach to life through capitalism and consumption, etc. Yeah, Jenny, I totally agree with you. Actually, I didn't want to say that, of course, we have not made technological progress. I mean, the fact that you and I are talking and Caroline are talking is a technological progress. We would not be able to do that. And uh, the fact that actually <clears throat> most of our, for us, actually, for some people who are lucky, like me, most of my work and job continues really the same whether there is, I'm simply, of course, much more careful not to catch the virus, but other words, you know, my work continues the same and I'm paid the same. So all of the things are actually technologically, you know, an advancement. But what you are saying, and I totally agree, is that that, that was that uh, we have been very good in advancing technology, technology in certain areas, and we have left aside other areas altogether, including now we see an area which actually where we should have spent much more, which was prevention and uh, uh, fight against epidemics, because we thought it was really, it, it was gone, it would not come back, you know, we were ignoring this. And uh, um, I, I remember that I, when I began to take the example of California, which actually impressed me a lot precisely because of the implications that they have. Uh, I mean, in terms of liberal government, democratic, I mean, democratic party, basically, you know, Silicon Valley and all that. So we go on an excursion, we come back and go to a, to a parking lot there. The parking lot is actually is uh, all, all the cars that are, you know, there is no car which is less than Audi, Mercedes, Ferrari, Lamborghini, you name it. Like probably if you take the parking lot, it's like $5 million. It's not a huge parking lot. And on the other hand, you have this really total uh, lack of investment in infrastructure. I just mentioned about the, the, the system collapsing. So it's really the, the, the priorities were, were wrong. And the priorities oftentimes are actually wrong. And I, that goes back to, to, my, to capitalism alone. They are wrong not because the government is only bad people and they just want us to go bad priorities. We ourselves have bad priorities because we are driven by a system where actually acquisition of wealth and income are crucial in our own self-esteem and in our projection to the other. So of course we care much more to use our money to go, as you said, to take a picture on a, you know, a Bali Island than to actually take that money and with others invest it or actually put it in, uh, through taxation to provide the protection against what it is 
climate change or an earthquake or a flood or the epidemic. So the, this is the, the issue. And actually, I think that in, in some sense, it is an unsolvable issue because the, the hyper-globalized capitalism can exist only if there is alignment between its own objective, which was, as you were saying, quoting Marx from 1857, which is basically eradication of, of borders of time or any impediment to its own growth. But that is based on the value system that we have, which actually supports that particular growth. If our value system was different, let's suppose that our value system was such that we would actually uh, uh, believe, not believe in the importance of wealth or you know, acquisition of wealth and income and so on, we would live totally separate from that. Well, the, the system would not be able to expand simply because there will be nobody to buy this stuff. There will be no profit to be made. Uh, so that's why I say, actually, I think that the, uh, uh, one of the stories in, in Capitalism Alone, which goes back to Plato, is that in order for a system to function efficiently, you have to have a correspondence in the objectives of that particular system and the type of individual and the value, values that are actually um, internalized by these people. You know, Plato has that nicely with four different types of uh, regime, and each of them is um, sort of, uh, each of them corresponds to a different type of individual. That, that's how we have it in, in capitalism. And I think one of the problems, going back to your first question of socialism, is that it was unable, unlike capitalism, unable to create the type of value system that was consistent with the ultimate objectives of socialism. Because if you have the objective, let's suppose, of equality or classless structure, but on the other hand, people want to, uh, you know, <laughs> become richer than the others. They want to actually uh, work less. They work to have all these other advantages. And of course, the system does become, and actually socialism did become, a de facto class system, despite the rhetoric, which was different. So you see, in that sense, I think there was a divergence between the value system that was promoted by official ideology and the value system that people had. In capitalism, I don't think there is much of a difference between the two. So, I mean, that inevitably leads to the question, um, what does the convergence look like? What would the value system that you envisioned was ideal for that model? I mean, what would that look like? And then how do you make that the foundation of you know, I, I've become skeptical that we can actually do the, the change uh, of the value system regardless of what is happening in real world. In other words, we can do that as individuals and you can, I mean, not you, but we can all sort of <clears throat> reject it and we go and create a small community and we can just live on our own. You know, you have communities like that in the US, you have it in Europe as well. But these communities, as Marx would say, they don't really affect the, the underlying system, nor do they affect the future. You know, they affect the lives of these individuals who have chosen to do that, but other than that, they have no other impact. So that's why I believe that if we are talking about the change, <coughs> it has to actually come from a, a change in uh, the objective conditions of production. Let me give you an example. Uh, because now people talk very much like whether capitalism would survive, what would be the new alternative system and so on. And there are different views on that, including, for example, in Piketty's uh, most recent book where he actually advocates, uh, which is interesting, advocates that nobody 
who has shares in a company should have more than 10% of management rights. In other words, the shares, you might have 90% of shares, but essentially the marginal value of these other shares would be zero in terms of your management right. So that actually uh, opens up, <coughs> I'm sorry, a managerial role for many other people, you know, what is called stakeholders, but in reality it would be workers. So, you know, this is an, in one possibility of limiting the power of capital within a company. So I think it's, I think it's an interesting possibility. There were other, you know, stories. There was an old proposal from the 1980s of the Swedish trade unions that actually they would gradually use the trade union dues and money, which was sort of uh, allocated to buy shares. And then actually workers would become a shareholders in companies increasingly compared to the you know, rich people of capitalists. So there are many possibilities, but let me uh, open up one and another possibility, which I mentioned briefly in, in capitalism alone. Uh, let's suppose that the population, we, we know that the, the world would uh, plateau probably at whatever, 10 or 11 billion people. Let's suppose on the other hand, that we continue growing the world and then that, that capital becomes much more plentiful and there is actually simply much more of it. So the ratio in terms of scarcity between capital and labor would change. In other words, at one point, it sounds like a little bit far-fetched, but you know, move like 100 years, imagine things. At one point, labor and skill of labor would become a very scarce factor. It's a little bit what is happening with startups nowadays. Startups actually are essentially people who have an idea, they have no capital, but they use capital of somebody else who is very keen to give it to them because of course they expect the return. But notice one thing here, the capital owners don't have a managerial role. They can give money or withdraw the money, but they don't do the management. So in that sense, you would actually change the situation of not having wage labor. Now, as you know from Marx and from Max Weber, wage labor is the essential component part of capitalism. There is no capital without wage labor. The two of them go together. Once you don't have the wage labor, you're going to a different social formation, which looks like, if you go to Marx, actually looks more like, uh, you know, petty commodity production, where uh, uh, individuals themselves in voluntary cooperatives or groups, not necessarily cooperatives, produce things. So we could, uh, so that would be actually fundamental change in the organization of production, which is the result of the scarcity of different scarcity of the factors of production. Now, under these conditions, I could imagine that our view of the world could possibly change. In other words, we would be necessarily led to collaborate much more with people who are equal with us. The hierarchical structure of the enterprises would also change or become weakened. And so maybe our value system, I'm not saying that I don't know, this is like a hundred years from now, or maybe more, but the value system might actually reflect these new relations of production within the company. So in that sense, I do allow, because it would be silly never to allow for a possibility that the value system changes. But to be quite honest, I don't see the value system changing when the relationship continues to be as it is now, very hierarchical within the companies and where actually the, the companies themselves try to project that kind of uh, uh, as, as a desirable way of life is the you know, acquisition of more wealth. So this is a long answer to your question, but I really, uh, to, to the bottom line is that 
uh, I, this is not discouraging people from trying to change the way they behave, particularly when it comes to climate change. But it's just saying, don't expect that it is an easy thing to do without the change in the underlying material conditions. But I guess that puts us in a really, really pessimistic spot yes. um, because how do we then change the system? No, no, I, I don't understand you. And that's actually, it's true. That's actually basically catch 22. In other words, what I'm saying, it took it in a put uh, in an extreme sort of form, saying you as an individual, yeah, I or anybody else, Caroline, we cannot really do anything significant other than maybe changing our life and deciding to live. But that's obviously everybody can do that. So it's not really particularly relevant. Because if I'm right, that it is really the underlying material conditions that eventually lead to the change in the, what Marx called, you know, superstructure. So you need the change in infrastructure to have the change in superstructure. Then until that infrastructure has changed, which is relations of production within the companies and within the state, then there is really no much hope in doing something. So I agree that would be the extreme version. Now to, to modify it a little bit, uh, I would say that, of course, individuals do have a role, particularly in their political or social engagement, in which they can make things improve. You know, what we were talking before about the coronavirus, this was not given that we should not invest at all in fighting diseases. So that obviously is subject to human action, to agency. <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to sound too pessimistic. But I also try to avoid to, to sound too optimistic, believing that the agency alone uh, is sufficient to affect that. So I think there are certain things, as I said, you know, uh, that, that can be done through political action or, you know, social involvement. So because agency alone isn't enough to change the current mode of production, then how does change occur? do we just kind of wait for our representatives to come to their senses? Do we, or do we try to shift the spectrum more to the left so that it's something that happens organically as a result of our civic engagement alone? Or do we start a revolution? What do we do? <laughs> you know, what, uh, to reinterpret what I said, you know, before it seems to me that uh, uh, civic engagement and agency is important uh, politically because there are a number of things that can be changed. I mean, start with taxation policy. I mean, we now have the newest, uh, you know, scandal with Trump and with, you know, payment of zero taxes. Uh, that obviously can be changed. You, you can change the tax system. You can eliminate the loopholes. You can actually make rich people pay taxes. So that's where the agency works. Uh, your question where I was actually more pessimistic in, because you originally asked this question, can really our... Uh, value system change in a such a way that we become, let's put it like that, better people, better persons. And that's where I'm sort of skeptical that we can do that with the current, within the current framework. I actually subtitle one section, the amorality of capitalism. And I think it's an amoral system. It doesn't mean it's immoral, but it's amoral. It actually does not take morality or ethics into its consideration. And we see that particularly when you look at situation like, a, like a tax evasion or tax avoidance. It, it is not a problem so long as somebody has not caught you. Otherwise, you just continue doing that. Sometimes within the limits of the law, sometimes at the edge of that limit, 
or let's suppose money laundering. And sometimes you try to be sure that you're not being caught. But you see that that was uh, why I think that essentially the, the, that for that change in the overall, uh, how should I say, overall values, which was your original question, I think that's not likely in my opinion without some other changes, uh, which are long-term and which we cannot as individuals, if for example, you take my point about the relative scarcity, we cannot affect that as individuals because that's a long-term process where capital becomes much more plentiful and labor becomes scarce. So each of us as individual cannot do anything about it. It's a little bit like us as individuals, can we affect the GDP of a country? Let's suppose you love your country, you would like to increase GDP. Well, you can increase your own income, you can marginally make a difference, but you know the GDP is the result of actions of in many countries like millions of people. So your individual effort is very, very small. The same is with voting. Your individual role is very small. But that doesn't mean that if you aggregate all the individual roles, they are small. I'm wondering, how do we bring morality into our current systems? I, I don't know. It is, you know, that I really don't know because that goes back, and there are really tricky parts there, actually, uh, goes back uh, to the role um, of religion. And since I'm not a fan of that. And of course, uh, and it goes back not only religion, but ethical behavior and all. You know, it's, it's difficult to... Uh, to actually bring that uh, in a system which is so much single-mindedly geared towards uh, um, towards you know profit and profit in terms of individual means higher income for yourself you know profit for the for the company but for you it is higher income and, and wealth so I think it is very difficult and what we actually have seen increasingly that that um, profit motive sort of is invading our private space. So many of the activities, you know, which used to be non-commercially non based have now become commercial. Now it doesn't have only negative impact, you know, let me give you one positive impact of commercialization. So it's really complicated and I'll come to something else in a minute about Nancy Fraser, uh, is that, uh, uh, take non-paid work done by women in, in a household. So that was actually a work which was really not commercialized. You do it because, you know, that's your role or because you love your husband or your children or whatever, so you work there. Commercialization is bad because it introduces basically totally commercial relations. On the other hand, it liberates women. You see, so it is really this uh, sort of a double situation. It's not very clear, you know. You might want actually to be liberated. You might want, may not, you will not be paid, but you would actually like to, to outsource that so that somebody else cooks the dinner and brings it to you and you actually go and work. So, you know, it is, it is a, a, a double-edged. And when I mentioned Nancy Fraser here, she actually talked about that like maybe 10 years ago and <clears throat> actually criticized uh, Polanyi, when he was talking about that particular process then being uh, taking place with enclosures and land and so on, and he was singling out the negative side of commercialization or commodification. But there was always also a positive side, the one that I would mention, for example, for gender work, gender-based work, or it could be also uh, slavery, or it could be other people who have actually gotten a chance through commodification 
it was a liberation for them to some extent, a modification. You know, so, you know, there is this double, double, um, how should I say, meaning of commodification. So it's not necessarily uh, all negative. There are lots of, I think, as I mentioned, lots of negative things, but there is also a some extent lib, um, liberating thing. And the liberating thing we have to also acknowledge that comes oftentimes through monetization of things. Um, because monetization also makes, uh, makes it uh, more equal in the sense that you don't have any more class-based distinctions which cannot be overcome. In other words, as you know, in ancient societies or even modern feudal societies, there were certain rules that you, if you were not born in a, some noble family or others, there would be no job, there would be certain jobs that you would never, by definition, that would be close to you or in a caste system, the same. So this is like, in that sense, monetization is actually bringing in the degree of freedom. And actually Marx was quite good on that, uh, pointing out that in, 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 in a sort of a positive uh, um, role of capitalism. But to take that one step further, it's almost like liberation occurs, but then it leads to another form of exploitation because yes. I mean, I hate this term unskilled labor because how can labor be unskilled? But um, like the woman who would be compensated for let's say doing childcare or whatever it is that is now being monetized, I'm sure that they wouldn't be making enough money to be completely free, in which case we're forced to ask ourselves again, that age old question that we just can never seem to find an answer to, which is what does it mean to be free? Um, but to, wrap things up because we're we've hit the 45 minute mark yeah. um i actually think that what you said earlier about the power of the collective is one of the most optimistic values that at least i harbor because although i individually cannot do anything together we can still do something and that is an answer that is a way forward you know so i guess to wrap things up this podcast is called the utopian because we actually were inspired by Tony Jude um, in Ill Fares the Land. He talks about how we need to yes, yeah, yeah. We, we need to imagine utopias again. So what's your utopia and how do we get there? You see, I think actually to be more optimistic because you push me in that direction a little bit. Uh, to be more optimistic, you can even argue, and I think it's not totally unrealistic, that uh, the U.S. being actually to the, gone to that extreme of neoliberalism and ideological conformism, which was really driven by the Cold War, could become, and we see that, I think, in the support that, of course, especially among young people, Bernie Sanders had and Elizabeth Warren and the role of AOC and others, is that actually, as it often happens, is that you go too much in one direction, there is a very strong reaction. And I think that actually in the sense, US could uh, politically move uh, strongly, not, I don't think in this the new administration, unfortunately, but maybe down the road in a much more left-wing direction that would really replicate what happened, of course, now with the different conditions, replicate what happened with, um, with the New Deal and with the FDR. You know, I, I'm not, you know, the, the conditions are different. Uh, you know, FDR was also helped by the war, by the way, because of course that acceptance of a common effort was actually reinvigorated by, by war, unfortunately, but that was the case. 
I think that here we will be spared that. But I think I'm in that sense optimistic because I see this is something which really did not exist in this country. I mean, honestly, when the first time I saw Bernie Sanders speak on TV, it was my son who actually showed me that. I had no idea who this guy was. That was about maybe uh, six years ago. And he told me he's a US senator. I said, it's unbelievable. How can the US senator speak like this? Because it was absolutely nobody ever spoke like that. Uh, so I was doubtful. I, are you right that he is a, I mean, I checked, but it turns out he was a senator. So I, I think that will, this is a, a big change. So this is what I would say, you know, if you ask me to, to imagine a utopia, uh, I would see actually, in maybe more concretely, a, a utopia where essentially many of the uh, sort of uh, public uh, services which have been really gutted out for last, uh, actually practically since Reagan, so we are talking now about 40 years, including infrastructure, are actually brought back. Infrastructure, and, or if you take health, you know, uh, US of course has introduced Medicare and Medicaid. It's not at all difficult to imagine that if you have, uh, a, you know, uh, Medicare for people who are above 60 or 65, then you can extend it below. You can extend it to 45, you can extend it to 25. Well, you can extend it all the way down because most of the expenses are anyway taken by the people who are older. Obviously, they have to go more often to see a doctor and so on. So that would be actually, I think, a huge step forward. And final one, which is, I think is crucial, and that goes back to Rawls also highlighting that, for breaking the uh, ability to, to convert your current uh, power of the parents have, like uh, financial power and power of the networking and so on, into the uh, generational sort of advantage, the role of public education. And that's why actually, if you look at roles, there are two things that are crucial, and this is basically what I also take in capitalism alone. One is taxation of inheritance, and the second is role of public schools. And for the public schools, it's not actually just we would like to imagine them. If you had a much greater funding of public schools, so that the best professors and the best then students who get actually then highly paid afterwards go to public schools, then you would have a total change in the dynamic. You would actually have a, could have a situation which actually existed, for example, in, in Switzerland, where you had really the worst people, like people from rich families, but who are not very smart, like say Trump, for example, they would go to these schools because they would be like a schools for really like, okay, well, they're expensive schools, but you know, we know they, these are really not such smart people. So that's what you would have. So that's not at all difficult to imagine, but in order for this to happen, you have to have reallocational money. So if you look at that, health reallocational money, education reallocational money, infrastructure, possibly housing, but they know much less about that. So, so this is a, a concrete, uh, uh, a feasible utopia is again to, to quote roles. So we could actually have, uh, you know, something, it would take probably 20 years, but you know, these things cannot happen overnight.